You're listening to the premiere episode of the MLM.com podcast. I'm your host, Kenny Rollins. What is the MLM.com podcast? Well, for the better part of the last 20 years, MLM.com has focused on bringing industry leaders relevant information on issues facing our industry. This podcast is the latest extension of that goal. Each episode, the MLM.com podcast will bring on a different guest to discuss topics relevant to the industry. In this episode, I discuss regulatory issues with Spencer Rees from Rees, Poifair, and Richards. Spencer is an attorney with over 20 years' experience in the direct selling industry. You can learn more about Spencer at MLMLaw.com. With the recent Herbalife settlement and the actions against VEMA and their settlement, regulatory issues have been a hot topic of conversation in the industry. The first issue we tackle is how direct selling companies should handle field training. As many of you are aware, the FTC's settlement with Herbalife calls for very strict training requirements for distributors. However, I've heard some express concern that such training could jeopardize the independent contractor status of distributors. This has been one of the issues raised in cases against Uber and others. I wanted to get Spencer's take on how concerned direct sales companies should be. We're going to join mine and Spencer's conversation in progress. If, if people only react to the FTC, which is certainly what's getting the most buzz, you, it sounds like you can get yourself in trouble in other ways. Well, and that's exactly right. And so what it comes down to is you have to balance the risks, which is the riskier situation, not providing training, uh, in which case you, you risk running afoul of the FTC's objective and desires and how they want the industry or the or direct sellers to manage themselves, or do you provide the training to satisfy the FTC and then run the risk of, of jeopardizing uh, the employment or, or the independent contractor relationship and creating an employment relationship? You know, and, and I have opinions on that. I, I frankly think that it's it's better, it's less risky to create and have training. Not only does that uh, satisfy the FTC's concerns, but frankly, it can make, make reps that much better and more effective at what they do. And if the training is good, then there, you know, you, you can certainly add not only clients training, but, but sales training. And Hey, that's a good thing because I think we're, my opinion is our, our salespeople are, they're taught very well how to, how to recruit. They're not taught well how to train or excuse me, how to sell. That's something needs to be fixed. Yeah. And, and I do think you look at some of the you know, things that have almost gone viral in the sense of, you know, last year there was the Today Show that uh, did some undercover reporting where they uh, basically, I think it was a VEMA distributor who talked only about the opportunity, you know, and, and to that point, we, we need people who uh, better understand how to sell the product and how to talk about the fact that, you know, at the heart of, of the good companies, and I do think that they're are some extraordinary companies within the direct selling space that provide great products. There are products that I like to use uh, that come come from the, the companies that that are in our space. But you know, we get so fixated on talking about the business opportunities sometimes that yeah, I think that that training uh, is extremely valuable. Oh yeah, yeah, without question. Without question. But yeah, not only will it satisfy the FTC if it's done correctly, but it'll make our our sales force more effective salespeople. Yeah. So that so that outweighs the risk of of 
of the downside on the independent contractor question. I mean, understand that an independent contractor uh, slash employment analysis is a multifaceted analysis. There's a number of pieces. It's a number of considerations that go into the mix. And whether or not training is required is just one of the factors that is 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 subject to analysis. It's one factor that's considered. It, you know, you could have say a half a dozen factors weigh in favor of employment, and you could have ten factors weigh in favor of of independent contractor. It just you know, it's there's no one. Well, seldom is there just one factor that's considered. The overall concern is is does the the principal that is the company uh, reserve the right to control how the individual worker conducts their business. That's the overarching consideration. But how do you figure that out? Well, you, you consider all these other different factors, of which one of the factors is uh, is, is the is the employee slash independent contractor required to take employer slash principal training. Yeah, and so I, I that actually eases my mind a little bit in hearing, hearing the way that you've talked about it, that it isn't, like you say, it's not just one factor, it's a factor in multiple things. And I do think, you know, that training uh, can go a long way. And especially with the technology that we have today uh, and some oh, of the, yeah. some of the ways that the, uh, the home offices can reach out and really help uh, these representatives get off on the right foot. Um, Cause it doesn't serve anybody's interest to have people, get involved in an opportunity that, that didn't know uh, what they were getting involved in and end up disenfranchised with the whole model. So so I, right. I agree with you there. We're on the same sheet there, Kenny. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things that I wanted to get your takeaway from, having, you know, known you for, for all these years, and, I, you know, I've heard you preach a lot of these things that now are finally getting some of the attention they needed, uh, I'm curious what you think are the the number one takeaways from the past, you know, really two years where we've seen uh, increased regulation. Oh sure, yeah, we've given that a lot of consideration, and and really, you know, we we look at the VEMA and the Herbalife settlement orders, and and a lot of people think they're just as different as night and day, but they're not. Um, just like the FD, Commissioner Ramirez's remarks at DSA, just like you know, there's there's common themes that run through the the uh, Herbalife and Vima consent orders, and they those common themes can be traced back some of them anyway to uh, 1996 and the the uh, burn not excuse me the uh, um, Omnitrition case. And they also came out in the uh, FDC's 2004 um, advisory opinion to DSA. And and so we have to ask ourselves, well, what are those common themes? Because we've seen them really exercise, the FTC exercised them in the last two years, in Vima and Herbalife and in uh, Burn Lounge. But, but the, the handwriting's been on the wall for many, many years. So those common themes, are, the first two are going to surprise nobody. Income and lifestyle claims, we've got to get those under control. Well, that's that's only been an issue for 75 years now. So yeah, exactly. Big shock there. Right. Um, the next one you and I just spoke about, and that is uh, training. You know, the FTC is very much in favor and then requires – and I'm going to include within the umbrella of training um, uh, compliance monitoring and enforcement. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so again, those are not, those two are not – 
surprising in the least. They've been around forever. Um, the second two common themes or, or uh, principles that we see underlying all of the recent FTC activity are two. Um, one is, and I, I classify that as uh, they are against and trying to prohibit inventory loading. Now, a lot of people say inventory loading. What are you talking about? We don't require people to buy lots of merchandise or load them up with inventory. That's not what inventory loading is anymore. See, that's the problem. People misunderstand what is inventory loading. They, everybody's in this old, the old school mindset of inventory loading occurs when, when companies foist you know, large amounts of merchandise on, on people. Well, that's what it used to be. Anymore, inventory loading, and this, is, this comes back from the uh, Omnitrition case back in 1996. Inventory loading now, there's, there's two definitions. The old school definition still applies, but the new school definition, and that's the one that the FTC is really harping on now, the new school definition is that inventory loading occurs when distributors or reps make minimum purchases necessary to qualify for recruitment-based bonuses without reselling the merchandise. That's the, the definition that came out of the Omnitrition case in 1996. Well, what does that mean? And this is exactly what we saw reflected in the uh, 2004 advisory opinion. It's reps are making the, – the, the inventory loading occurs. It's, it's not a question of quantity of merchandise. It's the question of why are reps buying? What is the motive for purchase? If the motive for purchase is to qualify for compensation and they don't subsequently resell the merchandise – then that's inventory loading. Well, how does that impact us now? Well, <laughs> this is exactly where the FTC is. This is the exact issue that, that they're focusing on, and that is um, the compensation plans are designed so that people have to do a minimum PV quota every month, 100, 200 PV to be active, whatever the case may be. Those purchases, because the, the reps are, are making those purchases primarily to qualify for compensation rather than primarily based on market demand for the products, they are therefore inventory loading unless they resell the merchandise, which of course nobody does or very few people do. Yeah, um, you know, and I appreciate the way you've explained that because that's by far one of the best definitions I've heard or explanations of it. Um, and it's interesting to view the Herbalife uh, settlement in in that light because you see them trying to regulate how how you define that right in the sense sure. that and uh, especially coming from my background in in thinking about how you would program a compensation plan right. um, you know in that no matter how much somebody buys you can't commission on it until you've received verification that it's been resold. Uh, up to a certain amount uh, of of product, which is considered an appropriate amount for uh, for personal use. So you look at that and you say, yeah, anybody who's trying to buy their qualification at the end of the month uh, now has that tool taken away from them because if it's over X amount of PV, uh, you can't commission on it until you receive verification that it's been resold, uh, which is a, a fascinating direction. Uh, and I know, you know, there are mixed emotions ab about that direction, but it, it is fascinating. And like you said, so many people look at inventory loading strictly as, you know, the old joke of send me the dimension of your garage and I'll send you the product. 
um, yeah. which is yeah. no longer the case. Well, yeah, and, and it's, it's interesting because, well, in Herbalife, understand Herbalife was a, a legacy or an old-school comp plan. I mean, to to access all, all of the primary bonuses under the plan, you people would come in at the supervisor level, which was a 2100 PV purchase. Yep. Yeah. So that was old school inventory loading. And, and so we saw that that was addressed in their consent order, but they also had an ongoing maintenance requirement. And that's, that's the new definition of inventory loading. Right. So we see both of those reflected in the Herbalife settlement. We don't necessarily, we only see the new school version addressed in the Lima settlement because they didn't have a big front end purchase like Herbalife did in their complex. Even so, even, you know, just any plan, and, and it, I mean, how common is it to have 100 or 200 PV quota per month to be active? Yep. I mean, it's practically universal. Yeah, yeah. That is, the FTC's position is that if that is how your plan is structured, then you are inventory loading because in their from their perspective, reps are purchasing the products every month primarily to qualify for compensation rather than because they're acting as bona fide ultimate users or end consumers. They assume that the motive is financial. And and frankly, between you and me, I think in most cases they're correct. Right. And, and you remove really the argument by making it required. Now it becomes very difficult to, to argue that it's a market demand uh, when you've required it from a, from a compensation level. So do you think well, and, that... And, yeah, you have to understand there's two... There's required in fact and required in practice. You know, we have comp plans that say you must personally purchase 200 PV every month. That's That's a minority. I don't see a lot of that. I do see some of it. But the other is you can qualify... Uh, you have to generate at least 200 PV. You can do that either through your personal purchases or through retail. Now, the percentage of people that actually sell 200 PV to retail customers or generate 200 PV in retail customer orders is extremely small, less than a percent normally. So the tacit understanding and the requirement in practice, if not in fact, is that they personally purchase their 200 PV. So even though it's not required on paper, it's required in practice. Yeah, and and so what would your recommendation or what what do you think we'll see the industry go to? Uh, no personal volume requirements? Um, one of two things, either no PV quota or a PV quota that is tied to retail customer purchases. And you see, that's the, the, the – I said that there were four common themes or principles that we see. We touched on three of them. Uh, inventory loading is – is one the uh, uh, income claim, income and lifestyle claims is another, and and uh, training and and enforcement and compliance is the other. The fourth one is retail sales. Again, gee, what a surprise, huh? Yeah, um, no, and, and and that is FTC really wants to see sales to customers who are outside of the distribution network. Yeah, and I was waiting for you to get to that one because that is the one that that kind of stands out to me the most. Um, and this won't be a surprise to anybody in the industry, but I kind of think uh, it's been obvious to me that for as long as I've been in the industry, which is my entire life, people have, yeah. have really treated the uh, distributor sign-up fee as a Costco membership fee which is whether I'm a consumer or, or a small business person, it doesn't matter. I'm paying to get the wholesale price. 
Um, And that is clearly the practice that, that I think most needs to be removed because you look at everything that's come out of whether it's the Vima uh, case, the Herbalife settlement, or uh, like I say, even that that recent uh, release by Leslie. From, uh, well, I was even talking about just that the four lessons kind of from the Herbalife and Vima, but yeah, certainly Burn Lounge oh, yeah. as well, uh, is that they want real consumers. Uh, they want They want to be able to, they want companies to be able to prove that real customers have purchased the product. Um, Without doubt. Yeah. And, and, you know, I look at that and I look at that as kind of a fascinating challenge and, and try to think, okay, well, you know, we're certainly in a better position than we've ever been to do that from an IT perspective. Um, but it is a, a mindset shift that, that it's going to be interesting to watch the industry grapple with, especially when you've got you know, people who have been at this longer uh, and are more ingrained in the ways that, 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 that they work? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, and, and, and you know what, honestly, uh, Kenny, it comes back to, I'm going I'm to tie this back to income and lifestyle claims. You know, look at what the law is. As I said before, as we got on this call, the FTC is regulating not by what the law is, but what, what, by what the, they want the law to be. Yeah, and you know they they the law is from the burn lounge case, and that is that that a distributor can actually make purchases, and those purchases are valid, bona fide purchases, and are commissionable if the motive for purchase is primarily based on market demand rather than financial incentives. The FTC does not want to have to conduct that kind of a detailed analysis to determine what a purchaser's motive is. They just want to look at a comp plan and say, okay, because it financially rewards people for their purchase by making them active, we want to have the assumption that they are making that purchase for financial reasons. And what evidence backs them up in that? Well, why do people get on board in the first place? They're onboarded or they get interested because they're they're lured and baited with income and lifestyle claims. So it all comes back to lifestyle and income claims. Uh, at, at the root of the problem, at the root of the issue, that is the biggest problem that we have, and it has been for 75 years. And, and you know, if it weren't for the income and lifestyle claims uh, and, and the way that they have gotten out of control and, and been and essentially that's – well, I'm going to – I'm going to – well, I'll get to that in a second. But but because they are so pervasive, and that's how essentially the products are marketed, you know, or the, the you know how we get customers, I should say, it's it's they're they're induced to buy the products because they think it's going to get them ahead and give them the opportunity to make you know untold riches or walk the beaches of the world or whatever the case may be, drive their Ferrari. Um, you know, that's that's why that that adds compelling evidence to the motive for purchase and supports the FTC's position there, that they're not bona fide customers because their primary motive for purchasing is based on financial uh, uh, incentives and financial motives, which are, again, evidenced by the fact that they join and they make the purchases, not because they get the best deal and they're discount buyers, but because they're, they're lured into the business with income claims. Yeah. You see, and I, I do think, because I could certainly, you know, 
having gone through the data of a lot of these different companies, you, you can look and you can say, okay, long after people would realize that they're not making this kind of money, they continue to buy the product. It, and so a, right. there's a case to be made on the other side of it. But to your point, the FTC looks at the the lowest common denominator, right? Uh, and I do think that that's where there's a, a big opportunity within the way comp plans are structured uh, to to stop drawing so much attention to that, right? Uh, you know, well, yeah, yeah. And, and Kenny, I think one thing that's really important to recognize is that yes, we within direct selling we have said forever that well, okay, maybe they're they're lured into the business and buy the products initially because of the income representation, but the longer they continue to purchase downstream from their enrollment without making any money the more likely it is and the stronger the evidence that they're buying as bona fide consumers. From the FTC's perspective, they don't care. It's why did they buy initially? What got them interested? And it was the income claims, which proved to be deceptive because the income opportunities are not nearly uh, what they're represented to be. Very, very few people make money. You've seen the run. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Paltry. Uh, and and the, the number of people that spend more on products than than they ever earn back is is considerably weighted and heavy heavier on the side of people spending more than they make. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. And and like I said, I think you know if really pushed, you can make that that case. Uh, but the, so often companies don't get the opportunity to make that case, right? Especially when you I mean you get into the whole ex parte. Oh. TRO oh, yeah. and things like that, yeah. which is, uh, you know, exactly. just mind-numbingly mind aggravating. Um, yeah, it's a complete, a complete uh, denigration of due process. Yeah. It completely ignores due process. Yeah. Uh, but um, most people's goal is, is to not have to make that fight or not try to make that fight. And, and I think right. that there is that opportunity there to, uh, you know, change the things that we're focusing on a little bit. Uh, and not have to fundamentally shift uh, too much. But, you know, like you said, either make the PV requirements directly tied to, to customer purchases. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I've long said is that I would have a metric out there that really focuses on non-distributor purchases, right? Truly customer Absolutely. purchases uh, and and the people who are, are repurchasing that are customers. Um, and that's data that, you know, companies should have available to them and they should make it prominent to their field as, hey, this is one of the, the metrics that we really care about. Um, and I think that would go a long way. Well, sure, absolutely. You know, and, and uh, you know, this is a technology issue too, so I'll, I'll throw it out there because I know you'll appreciate it. But for so long companies have said, well, you know, we sell all this merchandise to our reps, but once they get it in their hands, we can't track it. We don't know what they do with it. You know, Herbalife said that forever. Well, you know what? Bullshit. <laughs> I mean, you can if you want to. It's, it's just that the technology has not been implemented within direct selling. It's certainly available, though. I mean, all you do is you bar- put a barcode on each product, and you put a, a barcode scanner app on, on your rep's cell phones, and you scan each barcode when they sell a product. I mean, if you want to track who's retailing, you do it that way. It's the technology is easily available, readily available. Yeah, you just get an app for yourself for your smartphone, and everybody's got a smartphone, but you know nobody uses it. 
Yeah. We, we haven't adopted that technology in direct selling yet because – and I think it would be – by the way, just, just for InfoTrack's purposes, I think that would be crazy effective in the party plant world. Yeah, and um, that's that's something that really has, has perked my ears up and, and uh, piqued my interest over the past – couple of years you know because part of the problem is is getting people what what a company is focused on you know is obviously where the dollars go and and where the focus is um and i i completely agree that there is so much potential there for the technology uh to make things very transparent and to keep yourself off of the ftc's radar uh and to really know what's happening with your your product and that goes that would go such a long way um, but the problem is that you know let's let's be real i mean in the case of a company that has a, a big front-end purchase even if they had the technology they they pretty much know that their reps are not selling it yep they're they're either giving it away or they're they're garage loading it or whatever they're doing with it they're they're just not selling it they're not trained to sell so guess what we get back to that whole training component again here we go again amazing the way things come full circle isn't it yeah back to income claims and lifestyle claims and training yep no and i and i totally agree with you and you know one of the things that is kind of uh, to me indicates that we're starting to move somewhat in the right way is uh, we've got a lot of clients that uh, are having smaller and smaller average upfront purchases. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. to, to me, that indicates, yeah, that people are, are being more realistic about uh, what can be so- resold and what's used for personal consumption. Um, and so in that, in that sense, I think we are moving the right way. But uh, absolutely, yeah. the next big step is to say, okay, well, let's Let's make it so that, yeah, you can carry a little bit of inventory and let the company know uh, when, you've, when you've resold it. Well, I mean, that's, that's right. If we are going to say that we're a resale model. Um, and, and, you know, that, that comes back. We have to ask. I mean, I'm going to get to a philosophical level here, Kenny, that we have to ask ourselves, what are we selling and what are, who are we? And and this is a, a statement that Lori Bush, or a point that Lori Bush really drove home. Uh, we were out in Dallas last week for for uh, the Momentum Factor seminar, and and this is something I've been harping on for a long time. And and we've said it in this conversation, both of us. You know, we say the industry. Well, wait a minute, back up. The industry, an industry is is representative of a specific product or something. Uh, we are talking about direct selling, which, by the way, is also a misnomer. But but what are we? We are a multi-level. Well, that's a that's a compensation structure. Network marketing is the method of sales we use. So when we say industry, what are we talking about? The only commonality we have throughout what we what has been referred to as the industry is the fact that we all have multi-level compensation structures. Well, that means we're selling a compensation structure or an income opportunity. That's not an industry. We are a a distribution system that is comprised of numerous industries, you know, supplement or diet, health and nutrition, cosmetics, skincare, uh, travel. Uh, I mean, you name all the products and services that we sell. There's there's buckets of them. Yeah, absolutely. But those are all different industries using the same distribution channel and compensation structures. So it's a misnomer to say or to try to classify ourselves as an industry unless, because the only commonality we have is the same 
uh, uh, compensation structure. That means we're selling. The industry is selling income opportunities, which is not what we should be about. So that, that's a bit philosophical, but but I think it's very important. We have to identify who we are and what we're doing and what we're selling, and not call ourselves an industry to describe uh, uh, direct selling or multi-level marketing because it's not an industry. It's it's you know, and while the the compensation format is is the common the commonality running between companies, they're in very disparate industries. You know, and I actually appreciate you you bringing that up because yeah, it is a, you know more philosophical and a bit abstract, but it, it is one of the questions that I I think people uh, kind of have to grapple with, and you actually see that a little bit within even what we call the industry because. Companies, because like you say, we're actually uh, almost like a, a sub-industry or, or, you know, this loosely knit group of people because of uh, the sales method. But then you get the people who it, it's much more likely to be friendly company to company if you're not direct competitors. And you say, well, if you're in the same industry, you are competitors. And it's like, well, no, you're really not, right? If you're selling... Uh, you know, beauty products versus, you know, kitchenware, that's not a direct competitor relationship, right? Beauty products to beauty products, those are, are the people that are competing, so to speak. And, and so I, I agree with what you're saying that, uh, you know, we definitely do need to, I like the association of different network marketing companies to uh, utilize best practices and things like that. But I, but I think you're right that, we need to stop driving so much of the com- of the conversation uh, based on yeah the the one thing that ties us together, which is uh, the the compensation plan. Yeah, I, I yeah exactly. I think you're spot on there. Um, but but again, it, it's a philosophical question. But but you know really, it's a philosophical question that underpins the whole regulatory atmosphere that we're dealing with right now because we have been accused of or, or, or guilty of uh, going down the path for so many years of selling income opportunities. That's really what's being marketed. And how do we, you know, we, we sell that, you know, under the guise of offering products and services, but really what are people buying into? The income opportunity. So that is an industry. Yeah. They're done that. Now, you know, a lot of us just use the term the industry because it's a handy acronym to, right. to cover all of network marketing. But you know what? Uh, we, we need to we need to come to grips with that and say, hey, wait a minute, no, that's not right. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I agree with you. Um, so, you know, I promised that we wouldn't take too much of your time, um, uh, but I really appreciate you taking the time to, to hop on here and discuss uh, some of these things uh, with us. I, I guess I would just say, is there anything, is kind of some final thoughts that you have, anything that, that we haven't talked about that you think needs to be said in, in light of the regulatory environment? Well, you know, I, I guess, I honestly, uh, I, I frankly, it's my opinion that we're going to see, if, if we don't see changes on two fronts, um, we're not going to have a, a direct selling channel 10 or 15 years into the future. We've got to make some dramatic changes. One of them, one of the two things that we need to change is, is on the regulatory front. We need to clean ourselves up. You know, we're, we're, you know, we can't be sitting here wringing our hands saying, "Oh, poor us! What victims we are!" 
without taking a good hard look in the mirror and saying, how much of this have we brought on ourselves? And, and obviously that's heavily regulatory oriented. But the second thing we have to be extremely vigilant of, because I think this is, this is really the clear and present danger, and that is the threats from outside business forces. The Amazons of the world are feeding us our lunch. I mean, our, our systems of, of uh, you know, our customer service systems and delivery systems, I mean, it takes two, three weeks to get products when Amazon is going to deliver anything we want overnight, yep. free of shipping charges. I mean, come on, folks, let's wake up. Yeah, uh, we gotta get we gotta get more aggressive and creative, and we gotta face those challenges. So regulatory is a serious issue. The the business concerns are very serious, and and I don't see direct selling responding adequately to the Amazons of the world. Uh, a perfect example. I mean, I had uh, uh, I had uh, I bought some stuff from a direct seller for Christmas gifts. Yeah, um, and. You know, I, I placed the order. My niece is a distributor for them, and I placed the order through her website. And I, I wanted to send the gifts directly to the recipients and put them on my credit card. Well, they didn't have a ship-to address separate from the credit card address. And, and so I, ultimately, I just put my, my the ship-to address in as the credit card address, hoping that it would get there. Well, okay, it did. It got there. There was not an opportunity in the shipping process for me to put a gift card in there so the recipient knew who it was from. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and, and they just show up. You know, there's, there's no gift wrapping option, of course. Yep. Um, and, and it's just all of those things. And, and, and the, the order process was so confusing and confounded, whereas on Amazon you go and you buy something. It's really simple. It's streamlined. Anybody can use it. We have to be able to do that kind of thing and face all those kinds of, of business uh, challenges, and we're just not doing it. You know, and I, I think that's a great point because that's one of the things that I constantly bring up is, hey, guys, how does Amazon do this or how does Zappos do this? or, You know, and, and for so long, uh, we were such an isolated method of buying products where now – Everybody buys online, and it's been that way for, you know, a decade now, right? Everybody's buying stuff online. Everybody, uh, storefront, you know, who goes to a storefront anymore for anything but perishable groceries, it seems like. Uh, And and even Amazon's trying to get into that business. But, yeah, to that point, it's where's the next wave of innovation to keep us uh, up to date and relevant uh, within the, the changing lab landscape of how commerce is done. Uh, yeah, and that, I mean, and, Amazon is going to go to drone delivery, same day, you know? Yep. I mean, yep. You know, we, we've pride, I mean, I, you go to these DSA events and they say, oh, one of the strengths of direct selling is customer service. Well, pff, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, it really isn't. We, we, we've been passed by long ago. Yeah, not you for know, the, Yeah, you just, you can't rest on your laurels. And, and I do think that that is... You know, one of the things that it'll be interesting to see over the next couple of years how how we as as a group of you know network marketing companies uh, uh, respond. Yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, yeah, we've got we've got two major challenges in front of us, and I, I think that no, we do have strengths. Let's not lose sight of the fact that you know the the personal relationship. Amazon is never going to have a personal relationship with with its customers. It can have a great customer service department, but 
but you know, with so many things going online and people being friends on Facebook and social media, those real personal relationships, they don't exist online. But they, they, people are very hungry for those, and so that's a strength that we have, and and we're, we're I don't think we're in jeopardy of losing that, but but we have to capitalize on it. That's the issue. Yeah, and the but, the one thing I would add to that is. You know, I generally go on Amazon to buy something that I know exists. So the ability to use that that personal relationship to introduce people to new products and, and, and the education that can go through, you know, that peer-to-peer type thing, absolutely. Um, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because there are real strengths to this industry. And, you know, I mentioned that I've been in the industry my entire life. And uh, have chosen to stay with it because I think there are strengths, and you're right. We don't want yeah. to get those to get swept under the rug. Um, but if we want to continue to capitalize on those strengths, we've also got to make sure uh, to guard against our, our weaknesses and, and the areas that, that perhaps jeopardize uh, what we're trying to accomplish. Exactly. So anyway, we've got the immediate thing in front of us from regulatory pressures, and and, and honestly, that, that's that's my bit, my wheelhouse, but but from the business side, the the uh, the competitive pressures from other sales channels is huge, and we're not doing a good job of responding to that. So, you know, those are those are the two things where I think we we can end this conversation. Um, but but you know, identify our strengths and, and capitalize on those. Let's work on it. Perfect. And fix our weaknesses. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Spencer, I thank you. I think you you will always have the distinguished honor of being. Uh, the first guest on on the new podcast venture, uh, and I appreciate it. Uh, you're a rock star, Kenny. Thanks so much. And that's it for our premiere episode of the MLM.com podcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to you taking this journey with us. You can support us by rating us on iTunes or reaching out to us through MLM.com. We would love to hear your feedback and the issues you would like addressed. Also, special thanks to Spencer for his time and expertise, and thanks to the MLM.com staff, especially Jana Bingeter and Adam Holdaway for their production support. I'm Kenny Rollins, and look forward to you joining us next time.